Talks on psychoanalysis shares topics published in the IPA Society Journals and Congress Debates Worldwide, brought you in the voices of the original authors. We hope this window will allow you to experience the depth and breadth of psychoanalytic thought around the world. This podcast has been created by Gaetano Pellegrini and edited by Gaetano Pellegrini and Andy Cohen. Introduction read by Andy Cohen. To stay informed about the latest podcast releases, please sign up today. In this episode, we'll listen to Andrea Marzi on some basic points on psychoanalysis and the internet. Actually, it's not only psychoanalysis which reads the multifaceted nature of virtual reality, but also the reverse, where cyberspace also affects and influences seminal reflections about psychoanalysis itself and the virtual space of the mind. Psychoanalysis needs to develop an inquiry into the nature of virtual reality and the world of informatics and the new media together with a profound reflection from cyberspace about psychoanalysis itself and the virtual spaces in the mind, their possible existence and their meaning, their role within the setting, and the consequences in the analytic field. Andrea Marzi is a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst with a PhD in medical ethics. He is a full member of the International Psychoanalytical Association, Italian Psychoanalytical Society, and an active member of the American Psychoanalytic Association holding in these fields several national and international functions in groups and committees. He is an IPA member of the Task Force on Remote Analysis in Training, visiting fellow at the University of Cambridge, UK. He worked in the Department of Forensic Psychopathology and has been a former professor of developmental psychology at the University of Siena. He is also supervisor in institutions in the NHS and has published several dozens of scientific articles in national and international journals, as well as many books. Andrea Marzi, some basic points on psychoanalysis and the internet. I would like to offer some reflections on the relationship between psychoanalysis and the broad digital world, considering some points which seemed seminal for the purpose. I am absolutely convinced that this field is a real pioneeristic frontier of psychoanalysis, which we cannot and should not elude. Time is not much. So I think it is a good idea to recall some basic points. First of all, it is undeniable that the digital world poses questions and problems for psychoanalysis. Via cyberspace, we are entering the virtual world and using it as a possible perspective for thinking about psychoanalysis itself, the minds, virtual spaces, and their possible existence and possible meaning, the internal role of the setting, and the comparison between virtual space and dream space. This is also a perspective from within which to explore fundamental concepts in the making of psychoanalytic theory and the consequences of all this in the psychoanalytic relationship and the psychoanalytic field. We might also go on to ask ourselves what the Internet has produced and will be able to produce within psychoanalysis and, at the same time, what psychoanalysis will be able to do with the Internet. We must start from this unavoidable point of reflection. This is most important. 
When we try to pinpoint the meanings of the terms virtual reality and virtual, we realize how very indeterminate and elusive they are. When we talk of, of virtual reality, we tend, therefore, to mean a simulation of, of objective reality. Cyberspace, furthermore, has become almost synonymous with the digital world represented by the Internet. But while virtual reality and cyberspace do not correspond with one another, they share a common space. We might say that virtual reality is the language spoken in cyberspace. I have been interested in these subjects for many years, and I have written and presented papers in several psychoanalytic opportunities. Um, for example, the book I wrote and edited, Psychoanalysis, Identity and the Internet, uh, edited by Karnak in 2016 in the English version. Progressively, it has come clear to me that virtuality reflects the mind, uh, the object of our analytic work, in that both share the same character of place slash non-place that while having a base that is physical and material, the hardware and the software, the brain and the nervous system respectively, is in fact dematerialized by the digitization. Moreover, the body as a psychoanalytic object is therefore a dematerialized body, and it is another very interesting issue regarding this subject. We furtherly know that attention in analysis is not exclusively directed to verbal communication, but also to signals from the senses, the body, uh, for example, mimicry, posture, tone, voice, sensations of patient and analyst. In my opinion, it is unavoidable to link these characteristics to the concept of the well-known notion of the proto-mental state with its numerous developments. So if, uh, we know that in the proto-mental system there resides a structure of thought, which is a primitive mind, a basic primordial mental organization, quote, in which physical and psychological are as yet undifferentiated, end quote, beyond in 1961. It can also be considered a primordial condition of a group residing in the mind of an individual, in Beyond's sense, a sort of internal group life, a groupishness, groupishness as he himself underlines. The best known parameters concerning these body-mind aspects are challenged by the fact that in virtual reality we are confronted with a different fact. We have to deal with the never body, recalling uh, Peter Pan's uh, uh, Neverland. This highlights analogies and differences. In this way, the possibility of thinking that what happens in the digital world can be thought of as a digital third arises. This is a third which is neither a third year nor an analytic third. It is a datum in the etymological and literal sense of the term, an element which exists separately from the couple at work, but which nevertheless keeps coming right into the work of that couple. It is at the same time an external and an internal element, and because of all this, dreamable 
processable and manageable like an element of analysis itself, and it is, in fact, inevitably intrinsic to it. The mental space and the virtual space of cyberspace are both imagined as being endowed with the volume suited to welcoming specific contents of every nature, aspects, states of mind, fantasies, bodies, of, or numberless dematerialized objects. We might postulate that the virtual condition brings an important contribution to the thinking process in analysis on acknowledging that full, satisfying and genuine immersion can be realized only when the relational quality develops a tridimensionality. That is, a dimension which entails the presence of space. This makes possible analytic operations such as projection and projective identification with regard to space and to the virtual objects which exist in it. Reflecting on these features, I have realized that aspects such as states of mind, fantasies, sensory perceptions, bodies themselves and dematerialized objects can gradually present themselves, be exchanged or be connected. In this way, virtual space succeeds in being mental space and vice versa, both of them sharing the character of experiential zones if the subject succeeds in inhabiting this space as a place where drafts of analytic thought, quoting Hauptmann, are possible, using cyberspace, dreaming it, as a constant and flourishing source of thoughts. The subject can connect up dispersed or unorganized elements, proto-informatic elements I proposed to call them, giving to them a form of life, experience, original elaboration, including artistic expressions, and adventures of the mind that are not imbued with omnipotence or destructive narcissism. We can furtherly pinpoint other themes. One is obviously that of the identity, then the large field concerning ethical problems, and finally the theme of corporeality. I have to leave unresolved these two latter problems, which would lead us too far. As to the identity, it is unrealistic to think of identity as something ontological and therefore irreducible. Nevertheless, Is a new identity really being required of the analyst, or do we in some way risk mistaking a changing relational coloring for an absolute innovation? Undoubtedly, an effort of transformation and attunement on the part of the analyst is required. Thus, coming into contact in the session with the atmosphere created by the information-driven climate affect the possibility of staying within the bounds of one's own previous analytic identity, or does it violate that possibility? Besides, the democratic attention to pluralism with the consequent enlargement of one's own identity cannot result in eclecticism, even of an anarchic kind, leading to the famous and definitely postmodern dimension of anything goes.
The problematic area surrounding this subject tends to increase when the analyst's identity finds itself challenged by the vast, fluctuating field of remote analysis, known more commonly as teleanalysis. We need an open and reflective attitude in thinking that teleanalysis, this additional new frontier, was not intended to destroy previous concepts, but rather to enrich that which was already established. We need to remember that the object relations theory, too, was once a radical idea, which instead has contributed much to our discipline. The construction of new elements of thought endowed with meaning is what happens also in the analytic relationship conducted in remote analysis. Its new and at the same time classic setting shows once again how essential it is for its proper and genuine realization that a dynamic and creative three-dimensionality is set in the analytic diet. Here, the relationship and the field, although infinitely expanded in cyberspace, can contain these processes or transform them if they present themselves as concrete, asymbolic elements, beta elements according to Bion. The intimate contact with virtual reality and its objects, defined as above, real, uh, realizes uh, an intimacy which is internal and relational at the same time. That is, it exists with one's own objects and with the objects in slash of the cyberspace, and the latter continuously refer to the former. It seems to me that this mode is not possible if the patient does not possess the ability to preserve the therapeutic alliance and to share responsibility for the management of the setting, or if the analyst fosters doubts about this method. If he feels disconnected, I would say, by the lack of a physically present analytic couple. That is, if this is going to undermine the maintenance of his identity in relation to the patient. It is therefore fundamental that we use remote analysis only when there are no alternatives, when there have previously been periods of physically present analysis, and if the analytic couple is convinced and confident that the analytic process can continue even at long range. Nevertheless, certain valid and familiar features of analysis in person can clearly be achieved here too. My personal experience underlines the fact that this mode of working is quite adequate on the whole, and that an analytic relationship can be obtained that is to a large extent congruent with the classical model, provided that certain requirements are respected. In this context, the gains are more than losses when we use it properly. What seems fundamental is the readiness of the analyst and obviously the patient to accept every manifestation of the remote setting within the analytic elaboration of the couple at work, which includes also troublesome interactions with the technological problems that can occur and which are as fundamental as they are neglected by investigations in this field. 
field which I try to call a sort of telecommunicative field or a sort of analytical digital field. As to the body in the field of remote analysis or remote sessions, one of the most common criticisms against remote analysis is that the whole body, considered as essential, becomes virtual. And if it is not really there, it is said that analysis cannot be carried out, an adequate transference cannot develop, and so on. But the body remains, although in the particular form of digital body, and functions once again as a co-protagonist. The body gives its contribution in a particular dematerialized dimension and continues to provide its participation in mental life. Sometimes it is a needy but separate body. The observations and criticisms of many others have focused on several points, including the fact that telematic devices interfere with the voice. Other authors underline the voice is a strength in a setting where physical presence becomes virtual. The voice reaches to the analyst's mind very directly, making connections that are even more intimate than in in-person analysis. If the visual dimension is missing, other channels take over, and in addition, the voice invariably creates a body image in the analyst's mind. We can equally highlight bodily and miming manifestations of the patient with regard to anger, fear, shame, and sadness. Besides, the voice is part of the body and the body enters the analytic field by means of this manifestation, and also by way of the bodily sensations of the analytic couple at work. Other characteristics have their presence actually diminished, smells, for example, at least until technology finds a way of discovering such total immersiveness as to create olfactory environments. Of course, Many other pre- and extra-verbal features can be absolutely similar in both the settings, facial expressions, cuts, and sometimes tactile sensations, projective identifications, and counter-identifications of a visceral nature. What actually seems essential is not the physical presence to cure, which is overestimated at times, but rather to work analytically with the proto-informatic elements in this dimension as well. Quoting Bion again in this case, if the mind is preoccupied with elements perceptible to sense, it will be that much less able to perceive elements that cannot be sensed. End quote. In other words, it seems to me that with remote analysis, analytical thinkability and work can develop if the needs for creative exchange are met, whereas uh, its collapse is due to the demise of this relatedness. This determines uh, some contiguity with, rather than divergence from, the dimension of the in-person analytic relationship. In other words, again, we need to consider 
as one of the essential elements the creation of a genuine three-dimensionality stemming from working through the proto-informatic elements themselves in the form of a true and ongoing psychic birth. Distance analysis is not distant analysis, as Lena Ehrlich underlines. Also in my experience, the presence of the body is a varying intensity condition. Some patients do not miss it. Others suffer, and it is with the latter that we need to think about this mode and the need to explore and examine it. Psychoanalysis itself is required to concentrate more intensely on a case-by-case basis and on research. The recent and still ongoing experience of the pandemic has forced us to use the telematic devices we are talking about extensively and massively. Many analysts who had never used anything like this quickly had to convert out of necessity and in order to offer their patients a real chance not to lose their relationship. All this offers the opportunity to reflect even more not only on the contingent effects of telematic sessions, but but on teleanalysis itself, of which many colleagues seem to know not much and to discover only now effects, characteristics, modalities, clinical and relational declinations. This complex and very stimulating aspect offers the opportunity for a subsequent contribution in this fascinating field. And I thank you very much.